Amen. Come on, church. Yeah? Woo! So good. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Great having you here. We are celebrating this year our 30th anniversary. What a milestone. Can you praise God with me? Yeah. And that's a, that's a big deal for us. And uh, we're just honored and thrilled and privileged. And I think really throughout the course of the year, going to be inviting all sorts of uh, guests and friends to come in and celebrate with us. And, uh, you know, we tried for over two years to get Dallas to come. And he said, yeah, I'd love to. And then it was, you know, kind of a challenge to get his schedule to coordinate with ours and uh, was very gracious to invite me down for the filming of the Feeding of the 5,000 episode. And then ultimately, I even grew a beard for that. Um, my schedule didn't allow me to go, so uh, we brought him here, but I'm a little bit right now needing your help because I'm in the doghouse, because for two years we have just been, you know, kind of selling this deal as a great place for him to come, a great place for him to come and celebrate his anniversary, which is this weekend, a great place to bring his wife and to enjoy sunny San Diego. <laughs> And wouldn't you know it, I mean, we get a deluge. You know there's 38 feet of snow at Mammoth right now, 38-foot base. And of all weekends, we just, um, <laughs> it's raining right now, you know. So, um, but God's timing, as a lot of you know, is, is, um, is different than ours. And this morning, you're going to hear a lot about that in terms of the backstory of the chosen. But from a scriptural standpoint, I just keep thinking of this passage in 1 Corinthians where it says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. He's chosen the base things the insignificant things, the despised things. God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. You're like, why? Well, there's always a plan and a method behind his every move. And here's the why. that in Him, in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And the more we sort of swap stories and see the overlap of what he's been doing in me and what he's been doing in you and what he's been doing in Dallas. The Lord has a method and purpose in mind to it all. And um, he could have come to two years ago. It would have been great. Uh, but for him to come as we launch into this anniversary year, and then we'll have other friends like Phil Wickham's a good mutual friend of both of ours, and Eric McTaxis, who did Easter with us a few years ago, albeit online from New York. He 
promised that he would come in person, so he owes us. And uh, Bob Goff, Goff will be here to help us celebrate this whole thing. But I just thought with all of the millions and millions and millions of folks that God is reaching through the chosen. I had a person come up to me and said, Bob, you know this chosen thing? This series, it's, it's bringing Jesus to life. And I said, no it's, no, it's not. Yeah, 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 it's bringing the Bible to life. Jesus is alive. The Bible is alive. It's bringing you to life is what it's doing. It's resurrecting us to who he truly is. And so help me out of the doghouse. Would you stand to your feet and give a sunny San Diego welcome to Dallas Jenkins? Come on, church. Thanks, buddy. Nope, that doesn't make up for the rain. (laughs) Doesn't do it. I do think uh, God punished you for the rain with yesterday's San Diego Chargers game. (laughs) Just felt the need to rub it in a little bit there. Sorry about that. Not really. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. And uh, I am going to start us off with God's word. Matthew 14, this is the story that changed my life. I have a lot to say about it. God has a lot to say about it. Matthew 14, verse 15. If you've got this, this Bible, it's page 1514 in your Bible, which is actually interesting. But yeah, Matthew 14. The story of the feeding of the thousands is in every gospel. It's one of the only stories that's in every gospel. And... Uh, There's actually, most scholars agree, there's actually two feedings that Jesus did. Sometimes we don't always remember that. It appears like he did it twice. Uh, One for 5,000 men, not including women and children, five loaves, two fish. Other times it seems like there was 4,000 with seven loaves and two fish. In fact, in Matthew, it's back-to-back chapters. And so I'm going to read excerpts from both of them right now. So Matthew 14, 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. A little cheeky there. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Then in the next chapter, I won't read the whole story because it's very, very similar, but there's something that kind of stands out that I'll reference later. Verse 32 in Matthew 15, 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And then the story continues. 
slight variation from the previous, but the same general idea. So I'm going to take you now to January 20th, 2017, which was one of the worst days of my life, certainly the worst day of my career. I was in Elgin, Illinois. I had moved there in 2010. I had lived in L.A. from, 20 to, from 2000 to 2010, about 10 years making movies. And during that time, I'd had varying degrees of success, but I didn't get what I really wanted. So what I really wanted was success and affirmation. To give you an illustration of the kind of affirmation I was looking for, I used to rehearse Academy Awards speeches in front of my mirror. I'd like to say that happened when I was really young, but it, it continued into my 30s, unfortunately. I also really wanted box office success. Now, I masked that desire and that motivation by another desire and motivation, which was genuine, but I don't think it was quite as genuine as what I just described. And that is, I wanted to tell, to tell stories of faith. I wanted to impact culture. I wanted to make movies about my faith told stories of the gospel, for sure, I wanted that. And I thought, look, if I could win an Academy Award, or if one of my projects could show up on the box office list, like imagine if we were in the top three to five in the box office with a faith-based project, the kind of impact that could have. It's partially true, I think, but I think I was really using that to mask my true desire, which was affirmation. That's what I was after, success. And I considered myself an achiever, someone who was capable of results, good results and success, and I had varying degrees of it, but not the kind that I really wanted. Well, in 2010, I was asked by this big church in Chicago to come back to where I'd grown up. I'd grown up in the Chicago area. And come back, and they said, we, we have the resources and the money and the opportunity to make movies here. You can come and work uh, on staff at the church, and we'll give you the opportunity to make movies. And so it was a great opportunity for me to bring my family back to the Midwest and, uh, and also to, to not have to rely on uh, some of the independent financing that I had been before. Previously, all my films had been outside of the Hollywood system and uh, independently financed, and this opportunity was w with the church. So it was great. Well, in the first couple of years that I was there, nothing really happened. In fact, I got kind of caught up in the, the vortex of church world. I was doing a lot of videos and weekend production, things that I hadn't really done before. I wasn't actually making a movie. The script that we were developing that I had been part of writing was taking a long time to develop, and so a couple of years went by, and and uh, God was using that time to mold me in certain ways, but I wasn't doing what I was really called to do. So I went to the church and I said, look, we got to do something. I got to make something. I'm getting restless here. Uh, let's do a short film for our Christmas Eve services. It'd be a great opportunity for the church to dip its toes into the water, see what we, we can do. We can kind of test out this opportunity of making a movie from, the, from a church uh, and, and using the resources of the church. It's not a common thing. Let's try it out on this short film. So I did a short film for our church's Christmas Eve service. It was just a really cool story. And it went really well. And uh, in fact, the, the church services, we did seven services over the course of two nights. They were really well done. And the, uh, the, the congregation loved it. And then actually the short film, long story short, got into some film festivals, ended up on Amazon, which is very rare for a short film, especially when you've done it at your church. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. And uh, I kind of got my... My juice is flowing again. Well, there happens to be a producer in Hollywood, one of the most pro successful producers in the world. His name is Jason Blum. And he's responsible for all of the most successful horror films of the last 10 years that you've heard of, but not seen, because I know you're Christians and you haven't seen them. 
But movies like Insidious and Sinister and uh, Get Out and Up and even this recent movie that just came out a couple weeks ago called Megan, it's a huge success. He's the king of low-budget films that make hundreds of millions of dollars. And believe it or not, he was intrigued by the faith-based film world. He saw it as a similar opportunity. He's like, lower-budget films that we can make a lot of money with and because there's clearly an audience for this, and, and that's, what he, that's what he's in the business of, satisfying audiences. And so he was intrigued, and we had a mutual friend who's a very successful filmmaker and who'd worked with him and, and who's a believer, and so Jason reached out to that guy and said, you do know any filmmakers, faith-based filmmakers? That, you know, what, what's, tell me more about this faith-based world. And so my friend told him about me and called me up and said, Jason Blum wants to consider working with you. He needs to see some of your work, so send him that short film that you made for your church. And I said, no. I'm not taking advantage of an opportunity with one of the biggest producers in Hollywood to send him something I did for my church. He said, well, I already told him you're sending it to him, so you need to now. And so, <laughs> fine. So I sent him this short film, and a really cool thing happened. He loved it. He's like, this is the bullseye. I want to be involved in this. And he happened to be also talking to WWE, the wrestling company. They have a film division, and they're interested in the faith-based world because they understand niche marketing. And, and so they were going to put up all the money and uh, they, they and Jason saw my script that I'd written, and they were really excited about it and thought it was good. And so a horror film company, a wrestling company, and a church in Elgin, Illinois, <laughs> got together and made a, a, a film. And here's the cool thing about it was I wasn't ready to sell my soul. I mean, this was a great opportunity, and uh, I felt like I'd finally arrived working with big Hollywood producers and getting the kind of affirmation that I'd sought. But I wasn't going to sacrifice the message, and I didn't want them to do that. And they said, no, no, no. You, you, you know this audience, you, you, you cling to the message, this is yours. We're, we're supportive of, of, of that. We're not going to ask you to change anything. I mean, it's an incredible opportunity. God opened so many doors, so many miracles happened to make it work, and I, I, I'd been given what I'd sought for so long. It was a really extraordinary opportunity. And then when the movie was done, they tested it. So this is where they show the movie to random audiences, and they fill out these anonymous scores, and they, they rate the film... And uh, to try to get an example, uh, try to get an idea of how successful it might be, how what audiences think of it. And the scores were higher than any movie that either of those companies had made before. It's extraordinary. And so they said, we want to do more. Let's do five movies over the next 10 years. Faith-based faith movies. We're going we're to kind of plant a new flag in the faith-based market. All, bringing all their resources to bear. It's really exciting. And then Universal Studios got involved, Walden Media got involved. They're going to do a theatrical release that's going to open January 20th, 2017. Now, when it comes to the box office, something that I was very familiar with, it's a math equation. You can tell from the numbers that come in early afternoon on Friday from the East Coast immediately how the movie's going to do that night, how it's going to do that weekend, and how it's actually going to do over the next four weeks. It's very rare that there's a surprise. People who are paid lots of money to figure this out have done the math and they can project right after those numbers come in. And the numbers came in early on Friday and they were lowest, they were lower than their lowest projections. It was a total bomb. And within two hours, I went from being a director with a very bright future to being a director with no future. Because each of those companies fairly said, you know what, we don't know this market. We're going to go back to doing what we do best, horror films and wrestling, and I was left with nothing. And I went home that afternoon, and I was home alone with my wife, and we were crying, 
and praying and confused because God had done so many things to orchestrate it, we thought. It fit into my calling, I thought. He gave me the desires of my heart, I thought, and then it was a failure. Well, God's not the author of failure. So I guess, yes, amen, but I guess I must have been wrong. I guess I must have missed it. I guess he wasn't part of this. Because if he would have been, it wouldn't have failed. That's what I thought. So we're confused. Maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this. Maybe my calling isn't this. I genuinely was in that spot. So at one point in that afternoon, I went to the kitchen. I was getting something to eat. And Amanda came in from the other room. And she said, God is putting something very clearly and powerfully on my heart. It's not, a, not an audible voice, but it's as clear as if it was audible. Two things. One, read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And two, I do impossible math. I wasn't sure what that meant. wasn't sure why. And of course, anytime you feel like you're hearing from the Lord, you have to test it with time. You have to test it with the word. It's very easy for us to hear things that we think are from God that aren't. So we, we decided to listen and, and, and pour in. And we went to this story. We noticed something that I hadn't noticed before, even though I'd heard the story hundreds of times. It's that piece I mentioned in chapter 15. Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Well, whose fault was that? It was Jesus's. Now, depending on your theology, you could say he allowed this to happen or he caused it to happen. I believe in this case, he caused it to happen. He's the one who'd been talking for three days. He knew they were hungry. He didn't give them a break. He didn't say, you know what, let's stop for a second. You're hungry. I'm gonna, before you get too hungry, I'm going to let you go home and get some food. No, he, he kept them there that whole time. It's similar to the story of the, of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea that I shared with the men yesterday morning, where he actually told them to camp at the edge of the Red Sea, where they were trapped. He put them there for a reason, where the only thing left to satisfy their hunger, their desperation was a miracle. So we're sitting here very encouraged, going, okay, the fact that right now we are desperate and hungry and feeling like there's been a failure doesn't mean God's not in it. In fact, maybe he put us here. And that phrase, I do impossible math. Ah, the box office is typically a math equation, but God does impossible things. So maybe he's going to turn these box office numbers around and we're going to be able to have a great story to tell these agnostics in Hollywood who need, who, even though they're supporting these faith-based films, they don't know Jesus. Well, they're going to see a miracle now. And it didn't happen. The numbers that night were actually even worse than they were supposed to be. It was almost as though God was saying, that's not the point. It's not what I'm trying to tell you. Now, this was still encouraging. This piece still stands. Sometimes God brings us to that place of desperation and hunger where the only place left is a miracle. But we weren't sure exactly what it meant. We spent actually months trying to figure out what I do impossible math meant to the point of even wondering and concluding that maybe she didn't hear that right. But that night, because we still were confused and wasn't sure what God meant, I did what I am fairly good at, at analysis. So I got on my computer and I wrote a 15-page memo about everything that I needed to learn. And I did something that, to be fair, was, I think, a good thing. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't blaming others. I was looking at myself. What did I do wrong? What, what, what did mistakes did I make? 
that led to this point? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? So I'm writing this out, pounding away, working for hours, solving this problem, because that's what I do well. I solve problems. At four o'clock in the morning, a message pops up on my computer screen through Facebook. It's from someone I've never actually met, someone who I was Facebook friends with. Maybe we talked once a year. Didn't say hi, didn't say hello, didn't say, heard about your movie. Just said, remember, your job is not to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. And I thought, is someone recording on my computer what my wife and I had been talking about today? I, I didn't tell anyone this. How does this person know what we've been studying and what God has put us in? And so, I'm, again, I'm an analyzer, so my first response was immediately, what, what are you doing up at four in the morning? <laughs> and he says, well, I'm on a different time zone. I'm in Romania visiting my brother. I heard about the results of the movie, and I just wanted to, to say that. And I said, well, can, can I ask you why you just said that to me? And he said, oh, that wasn't me. God told me to tell you that. And in that moment, my life changed. I can, I can describe who I was before that moment and who I've been since that moment. Because number one, I knew God was there. I knew God had me. And in that moment, I felt the comfort that talks about here. Okay, God's brought me to this place for a reason. He's got something for me. Now, I found out later, because eventually I... I, I Alex has shared this story. That's the name of the man who shared this with me. And he shared this story too, where he was walking home from a grocery store and he decided to look up the results of the movie because he had been a fan. He'd seen a pre-screening of it and he saw that it was a failure and he knew and he felt bad. And, and he said, God told him, tell Dallas it's not his job to feed the 5,000, only to provide the loaves and fish. It was as clear as it was to Amanda when God shared it to her. Shared something different with her, but it was just as clear. And Alex said, no, I don't want to share that. I barely know this guy. It's pretty condescending when he's in the midst of what I know is a dark time to just share something like this when I barely know the guy. And God just kept pounding on him, say this. It's so clear. So finally Alex said, well, it's in the middle of the night over there. What have I got to lose? He's not going to see it anyway. <laughs> so he sends a message off and immediately gets a response. Has to kind of defend himself. But he listened. That's a side note. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. Is that you follow those promptings when God wants you to pour into someone, especially when it's a truth from Scripture. So in that moment, my life changed because for the first time in my life, I was released from the results. See, I was someone who felt confident about those kinds of things. I was someone who was good at that. Achievement, figuring things out, understanding results, accomplishing results. And that notion that when you hand over your five loaves and two fish and God deems them worthy of acceptance, that that's where the transaction ends, that was something that took me a long time to get, over 40 years in my life. It took a moment like that, a crisis moment like that for me to get it. So in that moment, I got on a new plan. Now, I still didn't know what impossible math meant. My wife still didn't know what it meant. But we're on the loaves and fish plan now. <laughs> so I decided that's what I'm going to embrace. 
And the first step in that was being honest. So I did a, a Facebook post that weekend. Because typically, when you make a movie in our business and it doesn't go well, you still try to spin things. You get online and you try to convince people to still to create some, some fear of missing out. You want to make sure that they, they still see it. And so you say really positive things about it even though it's not going well. You try to hide the fact that it's a failure. And I decided, you know what? If there was something for me in this, maybe there will be something in this for others. And I'm going to share this. And so I'm going to be honest on a new plan now. So this is what I wrote. I want to share it with you. So what do you do when something you poured yourself into just doesn't land? I won't mince words. The resurrection of Gavin Stone had a very disappointing opening weekend and an even more disappointing day yesterday. Yes, we've gotten incredible feedback from those who've seen it, and it's had tremendous impact on multiple churches and individuals, and that's the main reason we do these movies. But to be able to make more, your movie has to perform, and people on a mass scale need to want to see it. And as much as I can point to multiple factors that impacted the box office, I can't play the blame game. Something I created and believed in and thought would work simply didn't connect on a measurable level. People didn't want to see it in a theater, and I thought they would, period. So what do you do when that happens in any career path? Certainly sadness is a factor, and my wife and I have dealt with that over the last week for sure. Questioning yourself, the future, etc. It's all part of it. But Amanda and I did something that has sustained us through this time. We pursued God and sought to hear what we could from him. And he made it 100% clear to us and through others who felt led to share something with me that I'm only to bring my five loaves and two fish. The rest is up to him. And I can honestly say I'm better spiritually right now than I've ever been. For the first time in my life, I would be 100% fine if I couldn't make another movie. That's actually a great place to be in. In my speaking engagements, I often quote my friend and unintentional mentor, the great Phil Vischer. He's the creator of VeggieTales, and he had a similar crash. He said once, where you're going to be in five years is none of your business. <laughs> now, that's not something you typically hear at a business conference, but it's, it's true. And now I'm fully living that out. I have no idea what's next. I have no idea if I'll make another movie. And while that's no fun career-wise, it's truly enriching spiritually. I'm serious. I feel a sense of comfort and peace and contentment and, yes, joy that you wouldn't normally expect after the biggest disappointment of your career. And that's what a relationship with Christ does. Joy regardless of happiness. Freedom regardless of opportunity. Don't hold on to things too tightly. Realize you're not as smart as you thought you were. It feels good, trust me. Here's the cool thing about this story. Now, of course, as I'm about to share, it doesn't end there. But at this point in the story, it was still life-changing. I didn't need to know what happened next to be changed. And I had an opportunity a couple months later to speak to a group of 500 students and film, uh, aspiring filmmakers who had asked me to come to speak at this film conference. And I shared almost everything that I just shared with you, including that, that note and the truth of the loaves and fish and where my life was at that point. Because when they ask you to speak and give the keynote address to a group of aspiring filmmakers, 
you're supposed to give good advice. You want to teach them how to make good films. And I said, I can't get up here and teach you how to be successful because I'm not. I can just tell you this, where I'm at right now. So I'm coming off of a big career failure and yet I'm in a better place than I've ever been. Got joy and I told them this whole story. And if the story would have ended there, the impact would have been the same. Because those 500 people at the end, I mean, I had more people come up to me than I'd ever had telling me that, how that changed their life and how that impacted. I still hear from people who were there about how that impacted them. The story could have ended there and been perfectly fine. But here's what happened next. While I was talking, I said, you know what, I've got this, I don't know if I'm even going to make another movie, but I got this short film that I'm doing for my church. Again, not sure what's going to come of that, but I feel really good about it in the sense that even though it's just something that I'm doing on my friend's farm in Illinois, 20 minutes from my house, I feel joy with it. Because here's what happened. I went, found the script that I'd written about a year and a half before, about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds. This little short film that I, idea that I'd had that we were going to do for our church's Christmas Eve service. But I put it aside because of the big Hollywood opportunity. So then when that fell through, I went back and I thought, okay, let's see what we got here. And I read it again and it was meaningful to me and I thought it'd be meaningful to others and the church loved it. And I said, let's do a Christmas Eve thing again with a short film. While I was making it, as I'm on my friend's farm behind a barn making this little short film, felt like a big step down from the Hollywood movie I'd been doing. Didn't even feel like five loaves and two fish. Felt like one loaf and half a fish. <laughs> but I'm on that new program now. So I'm making this thing and I would come home to my wife and I remember telling her, man, I feel more in my wheelhouse than I've ever felt. When I do these things, and I'd, been, I'd actually done other short films and, and vignettes for our Christmas Eve services and our Good Friday services before, oftentimes about Jesus from different perspectives. In fact, that's how I met Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus in The Chosen. I cast him in the short film like eight years ago. So I was like, man, every time I do these, this feels more right than ever. And I feel like I'm bringing something unique to the table that God has given me. And man, I, I feel like this is where I belong. And while I was making that short film, I was binge watching a lot of TV shows with my wife and I thought, man, one of the things I love about multi-season shows is you get the opportunity to really dig into the characters and, 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 and live with them and experience what they experience over the course of multiple episodes and seasons. I thought, man, there's never been a multi-season show about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? There's been movies and there's been miniseries. There's never been a multi-season show where you can kind of dig into the backstory and the cultural context and the historical context. And yes, the emotional connection that's so vital and been so missing from all these other Jesus projects that I'd seen. With very few exceptions, when I would watch Jesus movies and miniseries, as someone who loves Jesus and has grown up as a believer and knows the Bible, I'm like, why, why is this Jesus is so boring and lifeless and distant and formal and feel like stained glass windows? And then with the disciples, I remember someone told me this and I agree with them. They said, when Jesus movies, there's always three disciples, not 12. There's, there's Peter, because he's kind of the famous one. There's Judas, because he's a betrayer. And then the other 10 are all one disciple. They all look and sound the same. <laughs> I'm like, that's true. And I thought, man, what if we could do a multi-season show where we can get to know those people, to get to know the people who actually experience these miracles. So instead of going from Bible verse to Bible verse, miracle to miracle, which has been done and it's wonderful, and seeing the Bible reenacted can have, can have value for sure. But what if we could go a little deeper and do what sometimes sermons do, which is give you that context that, Sometimes we don't even get when we're reading the stories because the stories were intended kind of as Jesus' greatest hits to prove that he was the Messiah, but it wasn't necessarily filling in some of those gaps. 
And at the end of John, it says the world can even contain all of the stories that, that we don't report on in, in the Gospels. And I thought, man, let's, let's explore some of that. Now, of course, there's not really an opportunity to do that as me, because right at that point, no one was lining up around the block to do a Jesus project, and certainly not, one, not to do one with someone coming off a massive career failure. So I just put that idea aside and focused on the short film. But, long story short, the short film got in the hands of a small streaming platform that was looking for content. They were blown away by it, and they came to me and, and, and heard my idea for the show. And they said, we want to make your show. And I was really excited. And they said, we're going to raise the money through crowdfunding. And I got really depressed. <laughs> because crowdfunding never works. It's the thing you see on social media accounts, on someone's birthday usually, and they're trying to raise a few hundred dollars, and the bar never actually seems to get all the way to the end, to the goal. And the all-time crowdfunding record was $5.7 million from two different projects that had huge fan bases. And I had no fan base. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I need $5.7 million, but I need to do a project like this, you do need a few million. And we're going to be lucky to raise hundreds with, with this. I mean, and they said, no, we're going to put your short film on social media. And at the end, you can tell people about the opportunity to invest in this crowdfund opportunity for season one. And in fact, I've actually met while I've been here this week and a couple of people who watched that short film on Facebook, which is very rare because typically you're not watching 20-minute things on social media, but who invested at that time before the show even existed based on this little thing I did for my church on my friend's farm 20 minutes from my house. Ridiculous idea. I didn't believe it would work. I'm being honest. I thought it was ridiculous. But loaves and fish. I'm on the loaves and fish plan. It's not my job to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. These are my loaves and fish. I'm not responsible anymore for the outcome. I don't know that there's going to be an outcome. And if there is one, it's certainly not going to be because of me. So we put the short film out my pitch for the investment opportunity. Several months later, I'm sitting in front of the computer. We just finished a live stream as part of our fundraise. We were finishing up our investment opportunity, and we passed $10 million from over 19,000 people around the world, shattering the all-time crowdfunding record based on this little short film, these little loaves and fish. I'm sitting next to my wife, and I hear her sniff, and I look over, and she's got tears streaming down her face. And she says, I do impossible math. <laughs> because just as clearly as God had made it a year before, he was making it to her again right in that moment. He was saying, that's what I meant. Now, we thought it meant box office. We thought it meant numbers of some kind. We didn't know. We'd ask people, ask pastors, what does this mean? And, and couldn't figure it out. And God said, that's what I meant. So we got on the impossible math plan as well as the five loaves and two fish plan. And that's what led us to some really bizarre ideas, such as when the show first came out, it wasn't successful again. We'd put up, you know, we'd had $10 million to make the season, which sounds like a lot of money, but for a, for a multi-season show, that's actually quite cheap. That's like the catering budget for Game of Thrones. <laughs> so put out the season, and, and it was hard to find. You know, it's a new platform. People didn't know how to do it. Uh, we started doing DVDs, which, which typically you're not doing anymore, but, but it, we're just trying to make it as easy to find as possible, and it was expensive, and, 
And a lot of people didn't want to watch it. They didn't think it'd be any good because so many Bible projects and Christian projects weren't any good. And some people were, didn't know me yet, didn't know if they could trust it, didn't know if it would be honoring to the Bible. And so we just had a really hard time getting people to watch it. Certainly getting people to pay for it. But we did notice that those who did seemed to be really passionate. I mean, they were trying like crazy to get their friends and family to watch it. And so we thought, okay, how do we make it easier to watch? Well, then the pandemic hit. And I said, well, you know what? As a goodwill gesture during this very difficult time, let's make it free. And so we, I decided to do a series of live streams on YouTube. Make it as easy to watch as possible. Totally free. We'll do this for a few weeks. And maybe that'll get people to watch it. Maybe they'll start spreading the word. And maybe they'll be more willing to, to pay for it eventually. And I told this, the streaming platform this idea. And they were like, okay, but maybe just for a couple weeks. Because obviously still new and raw and trying to generate income and just giving this away for free isn't exactly the greatest idea. So a couple weeks we decided to try it. The first night that we released episode one and I came on afterwards and I said, it's totally free. I don't even want you to pay for it if you can't. But if you can, consider just helping us out in some way. And the first night our income quadrupled. And the second night our income quintupled. And the third night I said, the chosen's always going to be free. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're on the impossible math plan now. You make it free, and look what happens. And so from then on, that's been our approach. Our team, our company, the whole thing. We're on the five loaves and two fish plan. We're on the impossible math plan. And so what's funny is it's caused us to do some things that don't make a whole lot of sense. And God had a little wink for me at one point because last year we decided to try putting something in theaters. It's a TV show doesn't belong in theaters, but look, let's just keep doing weird things and see what happens, and five loaves and two fish, and so we, we were coming out in theaters last Christmas with this Christmas special that we did, and put out a new episode, and, and uh, we only, it was only going to be available for one night, one screening, and uh, so I made it available, and we said, all right, we're putting it out in one night, one screening, and within two hours, completely sold out around the country. And the box office number was $2.3 million in that one hour and a half. That $2.3 million was the exact number that the resurrection of Gavin Stone did in five weeks when it was out in such a big failure. And I feel like God was going, I got you. I got you. Check this out. Now that you don't care about the numbers anymore, now that you don't care about box office anymore, because I don't, I still don't. You came out in theaters again just a couple months ago. And in fact, episode seven and eight, our season finale coming up, we're going to put those in theaters for a couple days too. I couldn't care less about the box office numbers. I've stopped doing Academy Award speeches in front of my mirror. It doesn't matter to me anymore. <laughs> but I believe when I got to that place, God said, now you're ready for the chosen. Because here's what's interesting. As I stand before you today, by every conceivable measure, that the world cares about. The Chosen is a massive success. Last year, uh, Roku did this little, little, little article about the top five most searched programs on their entire platform. And you saw Yellowstone and Harry Potter and, and The Chosen was number five. And we're in every country in the world. The show's been viewed over 450 million times. It's been translated in over 60 languages. And right now, a nonprofit came in and is gonna translate the show into 600 languages in every corner of the world. 
And now these streaming platforms and studios that I was so hoping and desperate to get affirmation for, and now I couldn't care less, now they're coming and saying, all right, we want to help get this show out to the world. Maybe different motivations than mine, but that's fine. And so now season one is on Netflix and has gotten the most liked uh, tab on it. And it, all these things are happening when I, when I don't care about them. But here's what's, what's, in, what's interesting. When God first told me, it's not your job to feed the 5,000, it's only to provide the loaves and fish, it was in a very tender, comforting voice. Remember, Dallas, it's not your job to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. Because that's what I needed at that time. I needed that comfort. Well, now... When I describe the worldly success that the chosen is having, the tone of voice is different. When God says it to me now, he's saying, remember, it's not your job to feed the 5,000. It's only provide the loaves and fish. Because when I stand and sit in front of that blank screen writing season four or future season, doesn't they, that blank screen doesn't care about the success of the previous season. And so now, when I go back into this story, it's a reminder to me and to each of you, regardless of where you're at, regardless of how much success you've had or you're hoping to have, or whether you're in that moment right now that I was in on January 20th, 2017, we are to remember that he does the multiplying for sure. But he does include us in the process. He could have, if he wanted, waved his hand in front of those thousands of people and loaves and fish could have appeared in their laps. He could have done that. He didn't even need, really, to start with five loaves and two fish if he didn't want to. But for some reason, he involves us in the process. It's such a great, gracious thing he does. Where he says, I'm going to still have you do everything you don't need me for. I'll do the miracle part. You need me for that. But everything else, you're still there for. Go find the fish. Look, you give them something to eat, he says. Now we know what he meant by that. But So then when they brought him the loaves and fish, he multiplies them, and then he has the disciples distribute. He has them do everything that they don't need him for until the only, place, until the only thing left is a miracle, the thing that only he can do. So as you leave today, again, I don't know where you're at, but I know that you need this just like I did. In whatever tone of voice, God needs to give it to you. Remember, it is not your job to feed the 5,000. It is only to provide the loaves and fish. And if you can get on that plan, and if you can be comfortable in that state, knowing that when you hand it to him, the transaction is over, your job is to only make sure that those loaves and fish are as healthy and good as they can be, so that if he does decide to multiply them, that they can be impactful. It provides you with a sense of joy and peace and comfort that does pass all understanding. And like I said, I got on that plan and I'm no more joyous today with the success of The Chosen than I was back in 2017 coming off of it. Get on that plan and God will take you to places in your heart that you've never been because that's what he cares about significantly more than the 5,000 I'm going to close in prayer, and then Pastor Bob's going to lead you in communion. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to learn more about you, this great church, 
I know, Lord, that the chosen is just a TV show. It's not the end game. The end game is to know and love you more and then to worship and to be discipled. So I thank you that this church does that. Thank you for the opportunity for me to share. God, I pray that if there's someone today who needs this, that you would give it to them in whatever tone of voice that they need it, whether it's comfort or whether it's warning. But we want to be on that plan. We want to be off our own timeline. We want to be off our own measure of success. We want to be on yours. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.